Welcome to the Royal Shakespeare Company. Are you enjoying the show? You're joining us for Interval Drinks, a podcast by the Royal Shakespeare Company in which we talk to artists who inspire us. Every single mistake I've ever made, every lesson I've learnt, has been in the full glare of the public. You name it, it has happened to me. I just like pretending and dressing up. I really can't put it any more simple than that. Catching up in the interval this week is RSC creative Nancy Harris with best-selling author Kate Camillo. Okay, so after a while, you know, you do the work and then you have a story and you send the story out and what do you get back? And kids always shout the same thing. Money. Have you collected your drinks? Then let's begin. Welcome to Interval Drinks, the Royal Shakespeare Company podcast in which we talk to artists who inspire us. My name is Nancy Harris and I'm a playwright and I have had the extraordinary pleasure, along with the composer Mark Teitler, of spending the last six years of my life adapting Kate de Camillo's beautiful book, The Magician's Elephant, into a new stage musical at the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford-upon-Avon, directed by Sarah Tipple. Kate DiCamillo is a best-selling, prize-winning author, currently based in Minnesota. She has been a National Book Award finalist, has won two Newbery medals, being named National Ambassador for Children's Literature, and currently has almost 37 million books in print worldwide, including a brand new book, which has literally just been published, and I can't wait to read it, called The Beatrice Prophecy. Kate conjures worlds that are epic and vast, but she never shies away from difficult themes, such as grief, loss, and death. In that way, she does the impossible, as alongside the darkness, there is always empathy, humour and huge heart in all Kate's stories. Kate, welcome to the Interval Drinks podcast. It is such a pleasure to speak to you. How am I supposed to say anything after an introduction like that? I mean, I started to tear up just when you said that you'd spent the past six years of your life with the book. I would love even, see, already I'm going right off the script, um, to know what it's like for you to be in that theater and to watch what you spent the past six years, I mean, come alive literally in front of you. Can you talk about that? Well, it's a, it's funny because I feel like my role is a little bit like your role. I spent six years sort of in a room with Mark Teitler, really uh, alone, engaged with your book and, and in getting in under the skin of those characters. And it's a very sort of private deep relationship. And then also the most difficult is how you hand that work over uh, to a company of extraordinary talented actors and designers and a brilliant director, Sarah Tipple, and then it becomes theirs. And so it's it's a very moving process, but it's it goes from the kind of internal to the external in a way. And also communal. I always feel like a book is never done until it is in the hands of a reader that I do not know. And then we make a community of two. But before that, right, when we're so mm. desperate for community, and it is also a story that is so much about community. The Magician's Elephant, is it, it absolutely is a story about community. So, Kate, I have to ask you, what is your interval drink of choice? You can have absolutely an, anything at all that you want, alcoholic, non-alcoholic, just a particular interval drink. 
I would like to have vodka and grapefruit juice, which is a greyhound, but it doesn't always go that way. A lot of times people don't know what a greyhound is. Wow, yeah. that sounds delicious. Yeah. yeah, You live in Minnesota. You live in Minneapolis, right? Correct. What's the last thing you went to see live? It was uh, jazz at uh, the Dakota, which is um, downtown Minneapolis. What about music? Because that seems to be an important part of your work. Yeah, uh, totally. I, I, I just, I can't imagine surviving without music. I can't do anything musically myself except appreciate it. And I never wonder if this is true for you. I never sit down to write without uh, music, music that um, it takes me sometimes a while to find the right music for the the book that I'm working on, but then I put that music on every time I sit down to write. It's almost like you guys doing this has like opened up uh, another little door inside my brain. We would say that you suggested that to us from, from <laughs> when we read your book. And on that, there's a musicality in your work as well, I think. That was why we responded so much to The Magician's Elephant as a musical. Mark, said, who found the book first and gave it to me, he said, there's music in this. And I read it and there was. So what was the kind of the inspiration for the book? Like what was the divine spark that got you writing at that? that story? Um, the, the divine spark was um, I, I was in a relationship that ended and it was brutal. Uh, and I, I thought, I don't know how I'm going to go on. Um, it, it and it was uh, every morning I wake up and ask myself the same question, which is where am I going to put this and how will I go on? And it was just this really dark time. And uh, then uh, the, the tiny little spark was going to New York City, waiting in uh, the lobby to meet a friend. And I had a gift uh, for that friend, which was a notebook with an elephant on it. So I'm sitting in the lobby waiting for this friend with that notebook in my bag. And all of a sudden I have this vision of a magician who is washed up, wants to do real magic. And he's kind of, he's standing in front of me in my imagination. So I get out my notebook, which I always have with me to write down ideas. And I kind of wrote down the description of this magician, but in reaching into the notebook, for the notebook, I saw this gift that I was going to give with the elephant on it. And I, that was the electric moment for me was when I realized that this magician was going to conjure by mistake a live elephant. But he was going to actually perform real magic, which is something that he, he wanted to do. And so uh, I was literally like jittery because I knew it was something. And I, and when I got back home, I started to work on it. And this book, there's a wonderful quote from Ray Bradbury about how writing a novel is like jumping off a cliff and uh, building wings on the way down. And, and what I found with this book is that it's it can also be the reverse. It can be like building a ladder. And, um, and it can help you climb out of despair. And so that's so much of what this book uh, gave to me was that it, it lift it, it literally like rung by rung. I like climbed out by telling this story. No, I, I think it's such a beautiful um, thing that it was the image of the elephant 
it was the image of the elephant and then and then this that that's such a concrete and kind of dramatic image it's just the most extraordinary story Kate and but what and and because it's so complex and because of the way you write I think your structures are so complex and beautiful it's amazing to me that it began with that incredible concrete image but can I ask you actually just complete what do you have a process in terms of like you what you're talking to me there is very instinctive two images they come together and do you always follow that instinctive drive or do you ever plot things out yeah, no, I don't plot things out. And I think that I would be a much more relaxed person if I could <laughs> plot out. Because it's a, it's a thing that I, I, you know, of knowing, okay, this is something. Yes. I, and it, it, at the risk of sounding, you know, a hyper, it, 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 it's a gift. Those two mm-hmm. things come together and it's like, okay, this is a gift. And then I am responsible for taking that gift to where it wants. I don't want to use high flown language, but that's how it feels. Right. So I, but I never do plot out. And I remember uh, the copy editor for this book, when it came back to me from copy editing said uh, it's built like a Swiss watch. And I felt uh, my uh, heart go all the way down to my toes. Cause I thought, how did that happen? <laughs> because a Swiss watch means that uh, somebody had to know how to put all those pieces together. And, <laughs> and it's not me, right? You know, because I just kind of, I found my way. I followed these characters through the, and their hearts through the story. And then it came together. It is extraordinary. I mean, I can really vouch for the fact that it is built in the most extraordinary way. And it's, it, it, it every time I felt that I had a hold of, of your structure, it kind of went away from me and I kept having to come back and come back. It's it was it was like a goss it was gossamer in its delicacy. And 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 writing for the stage has to, is, is is strangely you kind of realize there's such I was going, OK, how do I because there's dreams in, in the book that are really important. And it's like, how do I get that into into the state? You know, and so because you go in and out of a dog stream at one point and you know, it's and the imagery is so amazing and it is all part of this amazing, rich tapestry. But when you're trying to kind of put one piece together, you know, in an adaptation straight away, it just you can't. You kind of have to get in under it. It's fascinating. But we kind of that was the thing that I found the most difficult was streamlining, because the story tells it's a story of a boy and an elephant and a magician but it's, and finding his sister. But it's also a story of an entire town. It's a panorama. And that's challenging on stage because people want to kind of know one person but actually it's all of these people that it is that is what you connect to in the book you've introduced to loads quite a few different people and also picking out who who do we really really want to connect with so like madame lavon or bartok or the countess quintet all these people and i wondered actually like do so these characters you're saying they they kind of just come to you like a, like you as you're writing, like the Countess Quintet appeared or Madame Lavon appeared, or did they just appear? They just appeared, <laughs> and it's, like, it's so. Um, I wish that I could be more, I, and and it doesn't engender this uh, certain terror as <laughs> I talk about it because it it's so, it's so. I can't make it happen, right? I all I can do is like show up and wait and listen. I, I just had that feeling of climbing out of something into something 
So everything that all these characters were going through, this loneliness and isolation and despair and also hopefulness, all of those things, it's, you know, it's always which character do you most identify with? I get asked that question all the time. In this book, it is impossible to answer that question because it's like we would need psychoanalysis and I would actually sound (laughs) a a little bit off if I were to say how I, each one of these is so deeply me and, and, and was a different part of my psyche at that time as I climbed out of this grief. So you do, of course, rewrite. I mean, you must, you so you do a lot of drafts. Yeah, I am nothing but rewriting. The very first draft that I do, it looks like uh, Jack Nicholson in The Shining wrote it. I I mean, I look, it's it's so rough, but it serves as a rough map. And then I do a, a second draft after letting it marinate for a bit. And then I do a third draft and a fourth draft and, and and about a fifth draft is when I'm starting to connect those dots. You really start to connect to what it is that you're writing. Do you do multiple drafts? I do. I do this. I'm very similar to you in my process. I, I'm a, a kind of instinctive and then I do multiple drafts and then I fi- I try to find it. But I find it interesting that you said there, I don't want to look too closely. I just want to bring, you know, I don't want to ask myself, why did I pick that character you know you allow the characters to be there and you don't try and impose anything on them and I love that too uh it's that thing where I always feel that the the story is smarter than I am and that goes for the characters too and so I can't make those connections until I've told the story, which sounds counterintuitive, but that's just the way it feels. No, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And do you have, how do you draw, what drives you creatively? What kind of books, what are the things that, is it the ideas? Is it other people? Is it, is it? No one has (laughs) ever asked it quite that way before. And and when I, after I attempt to answer it, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to answer it in turn. Um, (laughs) What drives me creatively? Well, I I have that quote in my head about, you know, uh, life being chaos and art being pattern. And so there's that always that, that thing of where you can feel this of knitting things back together and making something beautiful out of the chaos. That's, that's part of it. And it helps me understand it's, I'm such a reader. I feel most myself when I'm reading and that helps me to connect to myself and connect to the world. And so writing does that as well. And I just, I can't, it's how I process things and how I make sense out of things. Even though a lot of times that the sense doesn't arrive until uh, the book is done and somebody tells me what it means, um, <laughs> you know, but, and, and then what am I responding? You know, it's just like, I, there are so many things that I reread all the time, writers that I love that I'm always trying to get at the magic and how they did it. And I go to them for inspiration. I wonder who are those writers? I'd love to know. Uh, Isaac Dennison, uh, Hans Christian Andersen. Um, I just, uh, the the fairy tales in general um, are yes you can see that in your work I think you're you're just kind of they're steeped in you in <laughs> <laughs> they're in you. and they're steeped in me and and I'm and I there I feel like 
sometimes I feel that Russian doll feeling of just like, I feel like I can just open up another, you know, I, I feel them all waiting there. Yes. And, and, um, Anderson and, and Dennison show me how to pull them out, you know? Yes. And do you think, why do you think it's fairy tales? Is it because they speak to us on a primal level in a way? I, th- I think so. And I think it's that thing of, tapping into something much older and smarter and wiser and that, that collective subconscious in a way that it's just there. It's, it's there for all of us is just uh, figuring out the way, the way in. There's a playwright called Robert Holman. And he, I remember he one time said um, the reason he writes plays is, is every time he writes a play, he discovers something that he didn't know he knew. And I just think that's such a, that is kind of what I think I get from it. Like you get to connect to people, the, the, once you put it out there, as you say, it's a relationship between you and the reader and in the theatre, it's you and the audience. But really it's kind of you with yourself for a very long time. And you have to be, uh, and it's it's kind of working out what you're trying to get out there. And and in a weird way, what, what the story is trying to tell you, you know, the story, as you say, tell you, you don't really tell the story. It kind of tells you what to, you know, it's there. At least that's how I work. Right. And that's, it's like you said, you and I are very similar in our process. It makes me think of, um, uh, mystery, uh, writer, Elmer Leonard, who was just yes. a, a, a wonderful dialogue and just, he, but he, there's a quote of his that I love, um, that he doesn't, he, he, he said he never knew what was going to happen in a book. He, he writes to find out, right? Yes, then, exactly. I'm that, the same. Yeah. And, and so it's just like, okay, um, a magician conjures an elephant who comes through the roof of an opera house. What, what happens? I don't yeah, know. <laughs> I don't know. How does it? Well, I find that every time I, I write something, it's different every time. And the process is slightly different. Some things come much easier than others. Was there any aha moments in your career? Like when you've really learned something eye-opening about writing, about the kind of writing you want to do, about anything really, about the craft of it, about the kind of stories that you think you want to tell versus... Yeah, what a good question. I I started writing by writing um, short stories for adults and racked up a lot of, uh, wrote a lot of stories and got a lot of rejection letters. And um, then a case of kind of lighthearted serendipity, serendipity doodah, as somebody used to say to me. <laughs> Um, I ended up getting a job when I moved here to Minneapolis in a book warehouse, and I was assigned to the third floor as um, a picker, somebody who went around and pulled the books off the shelves and filled orders. And and th- that third floor was all children's books. And I entered into that job with a bias that I think a lot of adult readers have, which is, oh, children's books, you know, duckies and bunnies. That's nice, you know. And um and so I didn't it it took it took me a long time to actually read one of those books. And I read a, a book called The Watsons Go to Birmingham, nineteen sixty three, which is a novel by Christopher Paul Curtis. And I was so taken with how warm and funny it was but also how it told the truth. I thought I, I'd like to try something like this. So like I, I took that book home and I typed up a chapter 
to see how long a, a chapter would be. Okay, then how long would a manuscript be? And pretty soon after that, I started on my first novel for kids, which is uh, a book called Because of Winn-Dixie. And I remember as I was writing that, thinking, I, I just kind of have like a, a flashbulb memory of, oh yeah, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, so I'd been writing for a while but it wasn't until I turned to writing for children that I, I, I felt this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And, and if I have to articulate why that is, there's like, I think there's this unspoken contract when you write for kids that you have to end in hope. And I loved what that did to me as a writer and as a human being, that honoring that contract. And also the other thing about writing for kids is there's just kind of this, I think of it as peripheral magic. It's still there. It's still present. Anything can happen. Um, if you see a movement along the floorboards, it could be a borrower, right? And that part of your brain has not shut off the way it shuts off when you're an adult. And so anything is still possible. And I love tapping into that. Have you come across any barriers in your work? And what advice would you give? Because this is a show where kids are coming and you write it. What advice would you give to somebody starting out or who might be facing the same challenge? You talked about rejection letters. I know all about rejection letters. I don't yeah, know let's talk doesn't. about rejection. <laughs> yeah, let's all just let's talk about rejection. <laughs> well, and it's so, it, 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 when I would go in and talk to kids in schools, I loved saying, okay, so after a while, you know, you, you do the work and then you have a story and you send the story out and what do you get back? And kids always shout the same thing. <laughs> money. <laughs> money. <laughs> kids always shout money. That's amazing. Yeah, no, no, no. So what you get back is a rejection letter. Yeah. <laughs> story of hope. <laughs> <laughs> and then I asked them to guess how many rejection letters I got. And um, oh, they'll, they'll start with five, ten, and I'll go, you know, no, no, more and more. And uh, then some some kid will be really brave and shout 50, and it's like, nope. And so I'm doing this, like, with a PowerPoint. And then finally I'll, I'll put the number up on the screen, and it's, it's like I, I wrote a lot of short stories, Nancy. I sent a lot of them a lot of places, 473 rejection letters. And that number comes up on the screen. 473, you know, you know how many. Oh, my God, Kate. Yeah kids go nuts. They cannot believe it. And so, and then depending on, you know, there's usually a kid who will say, but why would you keep on going? And, and that's a hard question to answer. And I have to back up and talk about this, like knowing for a long time, like since I was in college that I, I wanted to write and not writing and, and how hard it is to walk around thinking that you're supposed to be doing something and not doing it. It's actually easier. This is something that it takes a long time. It resonates with adults, but kids don't get it as well. It's a lot easier to do the work than it is to talk about doing the work. And so um, it, it took me so long to sit down and finally do the work of writing that to make myself relentless about sending things out and collecting the rejection letters was easy in comparison because I knew by the time I got to that point of actually sitting down and doing the work that 
the only way anything was going to happen was if I did the work. I couldn't make myself talented. I couldn't make myself lucky, but I could make myself relentless. And so... Wow, that's an amazing thing to say. So you just decided, that's how you just were like, I'm going to be relentless. I'm going to keep going. I'm not going to let the rejection letters... Did you ever think you might stop? Did anything, did you ever have those moments of doubt? You know, it was, it was, um, it wasn't a terribly long time. It was six years. And I, you know, I don't know what would have happened if I'd gone on double that time, 12 years and, and, you know, a thousand rejection letters. Um, But, uh, and then what happened too was this thing of, oh, I, I was writing my first middle grade novel. And, and that feeling of, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So I say this all the time and I bet you, you feel this way too. It's just like, I feel like a lot of people don't ever discover what it is that they're supposed to do in the world. Uh, And then if they do, they might not get the chance to do it. Uh, And then to get paid to do it is just unbelievable. And so I, I feel like for all of us, the work of our lives is to figure out why am I here? And then if you can turn that into a, an avocation, that's great or a vocation all the better, but it's just, it's what am I supposed to do? And interestingly, another prolific writer is Shakespeare. (laughs) And and we're here in the Royal Shakespeare company. Um, And also, you know, I do take great comfort in that in Shakespeare and the fact that in his work ethic, I think is always an influence to all, all writers, but has he influenced your work? given that you're now the magician's elephant is here in Stratford-upon-Avon and you can't I mean that's another reason you must come Kate because his birthplace is here like you can't get away from that that uh, it's very uh, awe-inspiring. I have my um collected my two-volume collected Shakespeare out within like uh like five feet of me right now you know most of my Shakespeare was uh high school and college and so to come back to it as somebody who has now, you know, I'm 57 years old, you come back to it with all that knowledge of what mm. it flings and arrows of outrageous fortune, right? Yes. Um, and, exactly. and, 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 you know, you, you memorize those lines, what do the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune mean to you when you're, you know, 16, not much. No. By the time you, you get to be 57, you can feel it. So yeah, that is, that's uh, on my bedside is is like starting and reading all the way through the the collection. Wow. Yeah. So it yeah. so it and and do you re, is there any particular ones that you like or revisit or are there any Uh well, I <laughs> I love Hamlet and it's funny because so much of I mean that whole period of my 20s when I wanted to write and wasn't writing and I knew Hamlet well enough to think about Hamlet often. And it's like, you, you have to act, you have to find a way to act. You have, yeah. to, you know, and so it's like, that was always at the back of my subconscious. And now to go back and, and reread all of that, it, Shakespeare is like the fairy tales for us. We carry it around in us. Even It's in us. Yeah. Even, e- even people who haven't read any Shakespeare or quote unquote seen any Shakespeare, you carry it. They're telling me that the three-minute interval bell is ringing and it's time to take our seats for The Magician's Elephant, 
the musical. So the final question that I have for you, Kate, and it has been such a pleasure and I'm so thrilled to talk to you today, is who, real or fictional, would you like your next interval drink to be with and why? Uh, real or fictional, alive or dead as well? Alive or dead, I think, is Im- implied in the question, definitely. <laughs> Any, who, <laughs> I've decided that. I don't know if the RSC officially said that, but that, that is the question from me. I take Isaac Dennison. Um, oh. Yeah, I would be afraid um, uh, to ask her questions, but uh, but I would try, yeah. And what about you? Who would you... Oh God, I, you know, the person that comes straight to mind is Sophocles. (laughs) I don't know why. That was literally just the first thing that came into my head. And I thought, you know, I think I would like to meet, yeah, I feel like the man who wrote Oedipus. We we should, we should do that. (laughs) We should double up. So we'll have Isaac Dennison, Sophocles, you, me, and then. We could just have like a quartet, like a nice dinner. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, we could, we could get them all to come and see the magician's elephant. And I, I think that they would, I think they'd really like it. You know, it's 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 got some it's got some dark stuff in there and it's also got some light stuff. So it's good. <laughs> OK, let's 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 see the show. Lucky let's see. Thank you so much, Kate. Oh, thank you. And I hope we'll see you soon. And um, thank you so much for your wonderful book and the magic that you brought into all of our lives and that you will be bringing into other people's lives. In the- I thank you back for the magic. Join us next week when Zoe Lambert will be going around at the bar for fellow actor David Threlfall. I wonder what he'll be drinking. Remember, you can listen again to past episodes on the Royal Shakespeare Company website. Just search RSC Interval Drinks.